It's a great hymn uh, in that it, a great for this week as we think of Thanksgiving and kind of working through different aspects of life to give thanks to the Lord for ending and culminating in the Lord Himself uh, as our greatest gift. And so, uh, happy Thanksgiving early to you. Uh, hope you enjoy your time with family and friends this week that you have. Uh, what a great opportunity to give thanks to the Lord for so many great things. I'm very thankful for this church uh, constantly and uh, so uh, excited every week to be here with you and uh, open God's Word together. So let's do that and open your Bibles to Psalm 7. Psalm 7 as we continue our study in the Psalms. Look at a few more here as the year comes to a close. We find ourselves in Psalm 7. Let me read the text for us. A Shigion of David, which he sang to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Yahweh, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. Judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil, and is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to Yahweh the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh the Most High. Let me just pray again. Lord, we ask for your help as we study this word, that you would give great encouragement and help to us. Uh, in this in this hour, uh, to understand your word, to see it applied to our lives, and to see your character, uh, and have it cause us to rejoice in you and give you praise. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. That's not my phone, is it? <laughs> All right. Susanna Spurgeon had a number of chickens, and as a result, had many eggs. Uh, 
to sell as a result. I came across this story, and I couldn't find the source for it, but I thought it was a, a very interesting story. She would sell eggs to other people, and, uh, but she never gave them away. She would never give them away. Now, they were fine. They, they, they were uh, well off, and, and yet she refused to give away these eggs without uh, money, even just a little bit, for, even for her family. She didn't give away a- any eggs. She, she always required people to pay her something for her eggs. Well, as the story goes, apparently some began to, you know, say, well, what, what's the deal with this? You know, in kind of back corners, you know, calling into question some of her, uh, her actions. You know, well, how come she doesn't just give them away? She has plenty, you know, and, and making these accusations. Well, Susanna paid no mind to it. Uh, it, did, it didn't come out until much later that uh, she, the reason she had done this was she used all of the money that was given for these to give to various uh, Christian ministries and organizations. And uh, it's like, ouch, <laughs> for those who were accusing her in that way. Uh, and just a reminder to me as I was saying this psalm uh, that the truth eventually comes out. The truth eventually comes out. And there's not a need to defend ourselves and get worked up too much about uh, things others may say about us. Now, that's kind of a, a run-of-the-mill, a very we might say mild kind of slander uh, that she had experienced in her life compared to maybe what David is experiencing or maybe some things you have experienced in your life. Uh, What do you do, though, when the truth hasn't come out yet? How do you live when you've been slandered? How do you respond to slander? And that's really what David teaches us here in Psalm chapter 7. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 11 to 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Spurgeon said, if God was slandered in Eden, how much more should we expect to be slandered in this fallen world? It's it's true. God was slandered by the serpent in the garden, and of course we are going to face slander. And that just reminds us as well how contrary slander is for the people of God, uh, because it is really aligning ourselves with Satan, the accuser, the slanderer of the brethren. David is experiencing slander here. What does he do? Does he return in kind and slander uh, those who are slandering him? Does he protest his innocence loudly? Well, he does, but he does so to God. And so here we, we find this psalm to be about slandered saints, we might say. Yet more than that, because it's not just about David being slandered as a believer, but that serves as a, as a context to address something even more fundam- fundamental in this psalm, and that is the character of God, namely the righteousness of God. And that is really the focal point of this psalm, Psalm 7, the righteousness of God. See it throughout. David is is coming to the Lord, who is the righteous God, in the midst of his being slandered. Righteousness refers to conformity to a standard. It's closely associated with justice. We might say God is righteous, and he demonstrates that in his justice. It is the outworking of his righteousness. Now, I don't need to tell you 
how much confusion concerning righteousness and justice there is in our day. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, adjectives attached to justice today to qualify it in some way. Uh, much concern about this issue of justice, and yet we come to a psalm that highlights the righteousness of God. Here's one definition of God's righteousness is. God's righteousness is His perfect, absolute justice in and toward Himself. His prevention of any violation of the justice of His character and His revelation of Himself in acts of justice. And so David appeals to the God who is righteous. And there's a great verse in verse 11 that is really a highlight in this psalm. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. It's a good verse to have memorized just as you talk to people about the gospel even and who God is as you round out for them a, a biblical view of who God is. It's not uh, imbalanced. that You need this. Of course, you, you speak about the love of God as well and the grace of God, and yet this is a key feature that needs to be prominent in our presentation to ourselves as well as to others about the true character of God. Well, slandered saints and a righteous God. Let's jump right into this psalm and look at how David provides for us four reorienting responses when saints are slandered unjustly. Four reorienting responses. The first one we'll call the confidence of a clear conscience. The confidence of a clear conscience. In verses 1 to 5. Now the, the superscription, which is what that, that first little statement is. You don't always have one. That's what we call it, a superscription. It's, it's part of the text. And uh, it's an interesting one. It's a shigion of David. And you're like, what is a shigion? And we're not exactly sure. But it is a fun word to say. <laughs> shigion. It sounds like a dance or something. But, uh, but it's actually, most likely, some think it refers to... Uh, um, a an uneven rhythm in a song uh, that, that shows some of the distress even of the one singing it. And so David is undergoing some great distress in the slander. And so the song itself, the pattern of it, uh, matches that. This is a good lesson for us, that if that is the case, that the songs, the lyrics we sing should, should be matched by a, uh, a tune that highlights what's being sung. So, you know, if it's like, joy to the world, you know, like, it doesn't, shouldn't be down, uh, somber and, and sober, but, but joyful and, and exalting. And, and so it is with other uh, themes that maybe they need to be a little bit more uh, minor uh, key to communicate certain truths. So David uh, has a, uh, tells us this is to be a shigion. And then it's, uh, so we're not sure exactly a lot about that, but then also there's something we don't know as well. It's this man Cush, a Benjamite. We know he's a Benjamite, but he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So, Cush, you know, that, that, all we know is he slandered David. All we know is he attacked David's character. We see some of the nature of those attacks, even in verses 3 and 4 and elsewhere in the psalm. Uh, but even that's a lesson for us, that we don't know anything about this guy. I'm sure Cush during his day was pretty prominent, and people knew about Cush. And he had uh, a voice. Uh, he was on TV getting interviewed by all the news stations and, uh, about David and spreading his lies about David. And now we don't know anything about him. And isn't that the case? That we know lots about David. Uh, we don't know anything about Cush. And often the enemies of God, those who slander the people of God, are forgotten. They're, they're forgotten uh, in history. 
And that's even an encouragement for us in our own slander, that in the moment it seems like this, this person's so prominent, this person is so uh, significant, or, or uh, it, it, it's so bothersome, and yet we can remember Cush uh, was forgotten. They'll be forgotten as well, and so will this, as we wait for God to bring about justice in the situation. Of course, we can think about slander. We can think about God's righteousness on a cosmic scale, you know, in, in the big scale of God bringing righteousness upon the earth, but also personally. You know, we have personal uh, issues where we want God to bring justice to bear upon. Notice David, as he uh, is facing this slander, what he does first, he goes to the Lord. In fact, this is so common for David that even in the way that he words it in verse 1, it's as if he's, he's communicating that God has been his refuge and continues to be his refuge. This isn't the first time God is, uh, David has gone to God as his refuge. No, this is his, his normal operating procedure. It, it says in verse 1, O Yahweh, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers and deliver me. He takes refuge. What does that mean, take refuge? We've seen this a, a few times. It was in Psalm 2 at the end there. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the sun. Think about going into a, maybe a castle for protection or going into a cave or going under some shelter. I mean, your home is a refuge. It's a, it's a covering for you. So if it rains, you, you don't get rained on. If, if it's really sunny out, you don't get burned because you're under uh, the shelter. You're in the refuge. It actually doesn't change the external circumstances, but it pr provides protection within those circumstances. And so David's, uh, the slander coming at David doesn't actually stop because he goes to refuge in God, but actually it is a protection for him in the midst of that. So while the sun may continue to beat down, uh, the rain, may, the storm may continue to come, we can find a refuge, a place of protection. And David just so commonly uh, comes back to God time and again. This is his, his default place, his continual practice. This is what he's always done. I think of a little child who, you know, they, they play hide and seek. They always go to the same spot. They always go to their spot. You know, it's like, oh, I know where they're going to be. Uh, and there's just like their constant go-to spot. And this is David's go-to spot in difficult days, his default place. What is your difficult or a default place in difficult days? Could be a lot of things. Um, when it's not the Lord, there's a host of places we can go to. And it's different for different people. It's, is it to distract yourself with entertainment and the lives of others on your phone or other places? Is it to discredit others by slandering them back? Is it to withdraw from others? Not to have fellowship with the church? Is it to dull yourself with substances or food? There's a lot of things that we can do. Those are just some examples. We've all had our refuges apart from God in difficult days. And yet the scriptures constantly call us back to giving up those broken cisterns and coming back to the fountain of living waters. Think of that song by Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That constant place of refuge for the believer. Now, notice the danger that David perceives himself to be in as a result of these slanderous charges. He, he describes in verse 2 uh, the appeal to God based upon what might happen to him as a result of this slander. Verse 2, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart 
rending it in pieces with none to deliver. His soul probably refers just to the, his whole person. And David knows about lions. Remember in 1 Samuel 17 when he talks about facing the prospect of facing Goliath? And he, he uses examples about fighting bears and lions. I mean, he knew all about this. We're not as familiar. Maybe you've gone to the zoo before and, you know, you've looked at it through the glass. But David was very familiar with lions and the ferociousness. It's no wonder that Peter, in 1 Peter 5, likens the devil to a roaring lion seeking someone to devour in his slander as well. And so David calls out to the Lord to bring relief for him. Imagine many of those smear ads that we see or just, you know, political ads that we are going to see for the next two years, you know, and uh, just, you know, so-and-so did this, so-and-so said this, and all these ads going on. I just think like that was going on the evening news for David. You know, David was the king, and so he's got all these ads going, you know, David, son of Jesse, you know, and it's like all these different things that are being said about him, and it actually could very well affect his life as people are coming after him as a result of this. And so this is a difficult time for David. And yet he cries out for deliverance from God and he finds dependence upon God. But, but there's more here. He, he goes to God, but, but then he finds confidence in coming to God because he has a clear conscience, because he's innocent. And this is what we see in verses 3 to 5. It says, O Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let them trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. So David is, in essence, making a curse oath. He's making an oath before God that if these things are true, God should just kill him. God should bring the right consequences for his sin. Now, David is trying to be very emphatic here about his innocence. And this is where some people are, what, what is going on here? You know, David later, you know, uh, speaks about his righteousness. You know, judge me according to my righteousness. And you're like, whoa, I don't, that makes me uncomfortable. You know, there's none righteous. No, not one, David, you know. Uh, and, and so what is he saying here? Well, the key word in verses 3 to 5 is the word this. This. He says, if I have done this. He's not saying uh, that he's sinlessly perfect, that he's never sinned before, that he's always righteous. No, he's talking about the particular thing of which he's being uh, accused of. And David knows in his heart of hearts that he's innocent of this. And he knows that God knows that. These accusations in verses 3 and 4 were that there was wrong in his hands, that he repaid his friend with evil, that he plundered the enemy without cause. He says, if I've done this, God, then punish me. He knows God knows, and so he can say this with confidence. I mean, David clearly knows he's a sinner. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, many other Psalms, he's confessing his sin, and yet he is righteous in God's sight. He's been justified by his faith in the Lord, and he has a clear conscience in this instance. How sweet a clear conscience is. I mean, if someone is slandering you, what better than just to know that you didn't do it? I mean, it doesn't make it uh, all go away, but at least it lets you sleep at night. Far better than it being true. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, Paul said, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience 
that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. And so David had, like Paul, a clear conscience in these things. Proverbs 28, verse 1 says, The righteous are as bold as a lion. Speaking of lions, uh, the righteous, those who are righteous before God and also have a clear conscience and live with integrity, can be bold, can, be, uh, can live with that freedom of a clear conscience. There's another just kind of side implication here that I was thinking about in David's life. David says, Lord, if I've done this, all right, bring the consequences. Bring it on. I deserve that. I think that helps us a little bit to think about true repentance. David is innocent of this matter, but the way he approaches this helps us to see how a believer views their sin and the consequences of it. Sometimes people's repentance seems kind of sloppy. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed that before. Uh, there's a lot of ways repentance can be sloppy, but one is when people who are the, the, the one who's guilty and is repenting, and they want to hurry the process along, and they complain that it's not moving fast enough, or that the consequences of their sin is too great. It's kind of like Cain complaining about the consequences of his sin. Here, David, though, he, David says, Lord, if it's true, I mean, I'll bear it. And so, we have to be careful that uh, we, we don't, if we are the one, and even as we help others go through uh, a repentance for some sin, uh, that we know this, that the believer, by God's grace, says, you know what, whatever it takes, however long it takes, if I've broken trust, it's going to take time. And they don't demand the process to move at their pace, but they submit to God's chastisement and whatever that may look like in their situation. Now, what if you don't have a clear conscience, like David does? What do you do then? Well, what is the conscience, even? Well, it's that warning system in your heart. It's the check engine light that says something is wrong. Now, to be sure, your conscience can be wrongly informed, right? Your, your conscience is informed by what has been inputted uh, into you. And so what you believe to be right and wrong is going to cause your conscience to fire uh, in one way or another. And so one thing we have to constantly be doing is, is retraining and educating our conscience so that it's in line with the scriptures and the word of God. Uh, people who, who don't believe the Bible also still have a conscience and it fires at different things. It may fire at the wrong things. But nevertheless, we have a conscience that ought not to sin against our conscience. I've said before, the conscience is like a triangle in your heart. It, it is like, Every time you, you do something wrong that you perceive yourself, uh, you, you perceive to be wrong, that triangle gets spun in your heart and it cuts you up. All those sharp edges on those three sharp edges, it just eats you up inside and you just feel terrible in your gut. And, and yet, if you continue to sin against your conscience in that particular way, it, it dulls those edges. They get rounded off. And so you, that still spins each time you do it, but you don't feel it. You're not as bothered by it over and over again. But retraining your conscience helps to fashion those, uh, those rounded edges back to sharp because you want a sensitive conscience in that sense that you are rightly aligned with the word of God and the truth of God. Now, David, in this particular instance, he, doesn't, he does have a clear conscience. He, know, he knows he hasn't done this, and he knows God knows that, and that's a great comfort to him. 
But if you don't have a clear conscience, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, if you're outside of Christ, seek to get a clean conscience first by coming to Christ, by acknowledging your sin before God, that you have sinned against your conscience and you've sinned against God's law, and seek the cleansing that comes uh, by faith and trust in Christ. And then, as a Christian, it is our constant battle and, and pursuit to maintain a clear conscience. So having a cleansed conscience based on your trust in Christ, then you seek to maintain a clear conscience through constant confession to Christ of your sin. So something is bothering your heart, you need to start asking yourself questions. What, what is bothering your heart? It's usually not that hard to discover. It's just that we don't want to deal with it. And so you know, your heart is going, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And you did that, you did that. And it's this accusing conscience. So what do you do? You, you confess it. You, you deal with it. You bring it into the light is the idea. One writer said this about David's conscience and his innocence. He says, though innocent... Though innocence cannot exempt a man from being unjustly slandered, yet it will furnish him with a good conscience and much boldness in the particular before God. And so, though men may not know the truth, God knows the truth, and that is a great encouragement in the midst of slander. You know, David experienced this on multiple occasions, but you can't help but think about the the one who is most slandered of all. Right? We study this in First Peter, and the Lord uh, Jesus himself being slandered uh, as the, the most innocent person, not only that, the most righteous person, and yet facing all kinds of slander and accusations that were not true, false charges, and bringing people to lie about him in court, and having different stories, and yet still moving forward with it. The, most, the greatest miscarriage of justice. It's a fascinating study to study the trials of Jesus and see how many ways that they broke the law, their own laws, <laughs> uh, about holding court cases, all to slander this man to get what they wanted. And yet we read in 1 Peter 4, just to remind you from our study, 1 Peter 4.19, which says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we continue to do good. God is refuge may not make the slander stop, but it gives a shade in the midst of it. And so here's the, the first response that David shows us, the confidence of a clear conscience. The confidence of a clear conscience. Then we see in verses 6 to 11, the comfort of the character of God. The comfort of the character of God. We see in verse 6, he says, He calls out to God to act according to his righteous character. Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. David speaks to to God in what we we call an anthropomorphic way. So uh, it is speaking about God uh, in in a way um, that attributes human features to him. And so, basically, he's saying, arise. So, it's like God's sitting down, and he's telling him to stand up. And he says, lift yourself up. Another way to say that. Awake. So, God is sleeping. Awake. You know, so, obviously, God is not asleep. God is not sitting down. You know, uh, those images are portraying something. He's saying, God, act. So, when someone stands up, they're about to do something, right? Someone's sleeping, they're inactive, 
and when they awake, they're active. At least after your coffee and stuff, you know. And, uh, and so he's saying, God, act in such a way that you bring a change to this circumstance. And what David finds comfort in and what is a catalyst for his prayer is the will of God. He says in verse 6, you have appointed a judgment. You've appointed a judgment. He, he reminds himself that God in his righteous character will bring to pass justice. He's appointed a day. The knowledge of that day on God's calendar helps David to endure today on his calendar. David knows God has appointed a day of judgment, and so he prays for it. Paul says in Acts 17, 31, that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So God has appointed a day, a day of judgment, and he's going to do that judgment through the Son, through the Lord Jesus, and he's confirmed this by giving his approval to the Son by raising him from the dead. In verse 7 of chapter 7, he, he really has this imagery of calling, uh, having God assemble the peoples for this day in court. It says, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. He knows that all peoples will be judged. And, and then he says in verse 8, this is kind of interesting, Yahweh judges the peoples. And then he says, judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. You think, whoa, <laughs> David, that's a bold claim. But remember the context again. David is not saying, I'm so personally righteous, so God, judge me. I'm going to make it on the day of judgment. No, no, he's not thinking that. He's back to the accusations. Really, when he says, judge me, O Yahweh, he, it's really like he's saying, vindicate me. Like, show me in this particular instance to be in the right. Act in such a way that you would reveal the truth of these accusations, and so bring justice for me. That's what he's saying, the integrity of his heart. And so back to that clear conscience that he has. And so that's what he's saying there. And he says in verse 9, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Now David goes from looking at his particular situation and asking God to bring justice there, and it makes him think about other believers who face similar things. And so he prays for them. And so now he kind of broadens it out to say, you have the righteous and the wicked, and so God... Be on the side of the righteous and judge the wicked. You know their hearts. And so he kind of prays this, this broader prayer. And it reminds us of Psalm 1 and the two destinies of the righteous and the wicked. And then God becomes the shield to him. Verse 10, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Later we're going to read about all these weapons God has fashioned to bring judgment. But for the righteous, God is the shield. The shield from his own wrath, even. The shield from those weapons that God forges against those who are disobedient and unrighteous, God then becomes the shield for them. And then we come to that powerful statement in verse, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So, once again, David looks to the character of God, and this brings him comfort. It's like the beginning and end of, of this section 
are focused upon God's character. He says in verse 6, Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. And he speaks about God's appointed judgment. And then he ends by pointing to God's character as a righteous judge. And so he's bracketing this with the knowledge of God's character. And it brings him great comfort to think, even in the midst of his, his accusations, he's, he has a righteous God. And he takes comfort in that. Now, Dan Phillips, he, he speaks about this righteousness. He says, the righteousness of God, and he observes just from this verse alone, verse 11, he says, it is based upon his nature. So the righteousness of God is based upon his nature. It says, God is a righteous judge. He, he is that. It, God's righteousness is seen in his anger. So it says, in a God who feels indignation every day. And God, the righteousness of God is manifested in his judgment. As we spoke about that day of judgment that has been appointed. God is angry with sinners constantly because they're sinning constantly. So God is just, we talked about this a few weeks ago, God is good and righteous. And so whenever there is evil or sin, he has the same response to it always. He doesn't play favorites. He has the same response to all evil. And when there is constant sin in his creatures, there is then constant indignation at that sin. Now, this indignation word is actually a legal term. The idea is God is angry because his law has been broken, and his, his law is a reflection of his character, and so this is an attack on God's very character. And so, therefore, he is jealous for his name and acts accordingly. Now, this judge, God, is unlike any other judge because he knows the hearts. I mean, how effective would that be if a judge is new the heart. If a judge could see into the heart and know the thoughts and intentions, and that's exactly what God does. He knows the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, searching text. It says, verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we have we must give account. We must give account to this God and he sees all. We're exposed before him. Now, how would this anger and comfort or anger and judgment of God be a comfort to believers? Well, because there's so much wickedness in the world. There's so much personal wickedness committed against you in, the, in your lifetime as well as just looking around. I mean, open up, you know, the voice of the martyrs. Every once in a while, read what some of these believers are facing. I mean, unspeakable uh, wickedness and evil perpetrated against people. And to think, if God does nothing about that, then it's like those people, it was like no different than them just buying groceries or murdering this person. I mean, what is the difference? If God doesn't bring justice, it, no, these things matter, and they, they stir us up, and they stir God up, because we are made in his image. And so the, the, the knowledge that God is going to put things right is a great comfort to believers as they experience wrong. This is what Abraham came to conclude in, Ex, in, in Genesis eighteen twenty six: Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? 
The martyrs in Revelation 6, how long, O Lord, until you bring judgment? And so this is the comfort of the character of God, namely his righteousness, his righteous judgment. It's to be our comfort as well, all the character of God. But particularly in these kind of situations, we take comfort in God's righteous character. Then we see in verses 12 to 16, really an outflow of that, that comfort in God's character, in that we see the conviction of coming judgment. The conviction of coming judgment. This is another response David has. He believes that no one will escape God's judgment. It says in verse 12, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. David now expresses conviction that God's coming judgment on the wicked is certain and it is terrifying. David pictures God as a warrior. And this is a a picture of God in a number of places as this warrior. And it becomes also a powerful warning to those who are opposed to God, those who are not believers, who have not repented. Spurgeon preached a sermon on these verses and he entitled his message, Turn or Burn. We think about that, that phrase, and we've heard that before. Uh, and, and yet, how appropriate. I mean, that's essentially what this is saying. I mean, David is, is speaking it to us in that it's written in Scripture, but he's speaking it to God. And so it's his conviction that God is going to bring judgment, but it, it serves as an, a great appeal to the unbeliever to turn to Christ, to turn to God in repentance. By implication, David expresses what must be done to flee this wrath to come, this righteous judgment, and it's repentance. He says, if a man does not repent, what will God do? Well, he describes the judgment of God as almost a motivation to repent, to turn. And notice some of the things he describes. He says, God's judgment is sure. God's judgment is sure. He says, he will. In verse 12, God will wet his sword. It is sure. God's wills always come to pass. We see also God's judgment is severe. It's severe. God will wet his sword. The idea is, imagine God is the warrior with his whetstone and he's sharpening his sword so that it cuts deeper than it would otherwise, preparing it. And so it's a severe judgment. see also God's judgment is soon. It's imminent. He says... God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. It's like he's got it pulled back. It is ready to go. His enemy, he can see. He's taking aim. And so it is soon. It is all ready. And God doesn't shoot his arrows at random, just unjustly, we would say, but is very particular, aimed at the wicked, And Spurgeon said he never misses a target. God never misses. He always hits his target. The wicked may have many feast days, he said, but no safe days. Many feast days enjoying themselves, but no safe days if they are not reconciled to God. I mean, think of Edwards. He was just talking to someone about Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And, uh, you know, it gets kind of like made fun of in public schools, as, as was my experience. And then I read it later and was thinking, this is an incredible sermon. And he tries to draw out the peril of the sinner apart from Christ. 
that just walking along your day, you could die in so many different ways. You're just like on this, you're on like rotten wood walking around your life. At any moment, you could step on a soft spot and just fall through into your death and into judgment. And he pictures like, uh, Edwards loves spiders and, and he's just fascinated by them. So he talks about like a, like a spider's string. It's like you're just dangling like by the hand of God, like a strand, and, and you're like this spider, and detestable in God's sight because of your sin, and hanging over the fires of hell at any moment, that strand, how, how small, how easy it is to break that strand. And that's your life, <laughs> if you're apart from God. You may have many feast days, but no safe days. That's terrifying. And that's what we see also in this text. God's judgment is scary. Look at verse 13. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. This made me think of like that scene in lots of movies and shows where, you know, they bring someone in and they're going to torture them and then they have like the blanket over the table and they pull it off and all the utensils are lying there just to scare them and to terrify them of all these different instruments of, of torture. He's saying God is prepared. He's got these deadly weapons and these fiery arrows showing the, the scariness, the severity of God's judgment. Hebrews 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Revelation 6, 16, in the future, it says they are calling to the mountains and rocks, saying, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is a terrifying prospect. God of the universe bringing judgment. But it is also a deserved judgment. God's judgment is deserved. Notice the, the way he describes their evil, just stating. <laughs> Notice in verse 14, he says, Behold, this is why judgment's coming, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief, gives birth to lies. He speaks about the internal nature of sin. So they do these external uh, sinful actions, but the reason is because sin has been produced from the heart. It has conceived inside of them. They are pregnant with evil, with mischief. And then the result is they give birth to that sin, and it is in various expressions, in this case, lies, and that's in the context of the slander David is facing. This is very similar to a number of passages that speak this way. But the one that's most familiar to us is James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, verse 14, we read this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so this is when sin breaks forth, but it had its origin in the heart. And so he said, the nature is corrupt. And so therefore, judgment is just and deserved. The guilty are guilty inside and out. Their nature is corrupted. And so this is deserved. It's deserved from the core. Jesus said, out of the heart flow evil, thefts. Immorality, all these things come from the heart, and that's what defiles a man. And then we see God's judgment is striking. It's striking. Verse 15, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. 
His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. Here, we might call this boomerang justice. Boomerang justice. I don't know if you've ever thrown a boomerang before. Uh, when I was a kid, we had a family friend who, who got a boomerang and, uh, and threw it, and uh, it came back and, and like, came back at them and hit them in the shin, and it, uh, it, it really tore up their shin pretty bad. They were bleeding and everything, and, and uh, you know, you throw this thing, and you're like, oh, how hard can I throw it? And then it, you don't realize it's coming back at you, you know, if it's a good one, and if you throw it correctly. Uh, so uh, that's this idea here, and it's so, it's so interesting, it's so fascinating, it's so striking, because you can think of this happening on so many different occasions. I mean, think of, I mean, maybe you've watched like fail videos where someone's trying to prank someone else on YouTube and, and then it totally backfires on them and it's kind of funny to watch. But there's a lot of biblical examples of this very thing happening as well. Uh, Proverbs 26 uh, illustrates this, uh, this phenomenon as well. In Proverbs 26, verse 27, it, it says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. <laughs> Imagine that. Start rolling the stone. It's like, it goes up a hill, and then it's like, oh, no! And then it's just almost like a cartoon. They're running away from it. Now, that's a proverb. That's a general truism. It doesn't mean it always happens, because we think of Psalm 73, and we're like, well, it doesn't always happen, but, but that's the whole point. It's proverbial. It's a general truism. And here he's describing that happening to the wicked. It comes back upon them. I think a point here, as Derek Kidner points out, is that wickedness is self-defeating. When you sin, even if you're sinning against someone else, you suffer the most from it. It harms you the most. And so, the schemes of the wicked backfire on them. Think about the servants that were burned and killed as they threw Daniel, uh, Daniel's three friends, rather, into the fiery furnace. It was so hot that they, they carried them up to throw them into this kiln, and they were killed as a result. It fell back upon them. Think of the slanderers of David, or, or sorry, of Daniel, that were thrown into the lion's den, who accused him. He survives, and then they get thrown in. Boomerang justice. Think of Ahab and Jezebel at, as they stole Naboth's vineyard and slandered Naboth to get it. And then later, the prophecy was that. They, he would die in that very field. And so Ahab dies, and then Jezebel gets eaten by dogs. They go, let's find her body. And she's just a bunch of bones, a sack of bones, because the dogs ate her up. The guy pushed her out the window, and then the dogs came and ate her. It's like terrible. But, but that's what God said was going to happen. It's boomerang justice. I'm trying to paint the picture for you a little. Think about Haman. Haman is a great one. He builds these gallows, and he's like, oh, I'm going to get Mordecai. And then uh, and his wife's like, yeah, let's get him. And then, uh, then they're like, what do we do with these gallows? Like, oh, let's hang Haman on it. And so Haman hangs on the very gallows he constructed to hang Mordecai. It's just such a fascinating story. This is the way God brings the judgment back upon the wicked. It, it, it's self-defeating. I read this week about uh, the way that a tribesman in Alaska will kill a wolf. This is interesting. They, they coat their knife in blood, and then they let it freeze. And then they do it again, and again, and again, and again. Coating it with blood, letting it freeze. Coating it with blood, letting it freeze. Until you can't really see the knife blade anymore. And they stick it in the snow, so you can't see the, the handle. And they just leave it there. And then here comes a wolf, smells the blood, begins to lick, 
at the, at the blood, likes the taste, so keeps licking, and, and he keeps tasting more and more, and it starts to, to numb his tongue a little bit, and, and he's so vigorously uh, licking this, this uh, ice until eventually he gets down to the blade, and now he's tasting his own blood and doesn't realize it until he kills himself. And that's the idea of boomerang justice. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you get it now. <laughs> that's what David is saying. They, the wicked conceives evil, or the, he makes a pit, digging it out, falls into the hole that he has made. There's a lot of hunters here. I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> now, as a very practical point, let me say this. If you have this conviction that the wicked will be judged by God like this, that actually then frees you up to love those people. If you know God is going to judge your enemy for their sin in the most just way, more just than you could ever be just in, in getting them back, you can actually then love them. Because you leave it to the wrath of God and you can have compassion on this person who, if they don't repent, are going to face God's justice. And then you can be free to love them. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How could you possibly do that if you know and have the conviction that God will bring justice? And so then you're freed up to release that and then love them. Nevertheless, if you're here today and you're not sure of God's forgiveness of you, or you're certain of not having God's forgiveness, this is a warning, a clear warning. God's wrath has not yet been released upon you, and yet the imagery is that the bow has been drawn. Don't delay. Come clean in confession. Cling to Christ. Wickedness does not go unnoticed by God. There's an important word in this section. It's the word if. If a man does not repent, verse 12. What if he does repent? What if he does repent? And that's the grace of the gospel, that there is then justification. There is then reconciliation. There's then redemption. There's then expiation, taking away sin. There's then propitiation, the, the bearing of God's wrath in your place. And then there's then adoption, being brought into God's family. And that's what happens when we repent. What is repentance? It is a change of mind that results in a change of life, but such a change of mind that it affects us in our minds, in our, in our affections, in our will. We, we begin to hate that sin. Isaiah 55, verse 6, one of the best descriptions of repentance. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He'll abundantly pardon. God is a righteous judge. That means he must punish all sin. This is then the dilemma, because how can God forgive guilty sinners and remain righteous? This is the dilemma of the whole Bible. Okay, God is righteous. He cannot compromise his righteousness, and yet we're sinners. We're guilty. We can't make up for that in and of ourselves. So how can we ever be right with God and God still be holy? And that is the story and drama of redemption. And, and this is what we get the answer, most, the clearest answer of this in Romans 3. As Paul describes the gospel, 
And he says in verse 24 of Romans 3, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And he says this, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you can get this, it helps you tremendously that God is both just and the justifier. Okay, so God is just in that he punishes all wrongdoing, but he can also be the justifier. What is the justifier? It's the one who declares another to be righteous in a legal sense. They are righteous. Bang the gavel. Even if they're not that in practice, they're that in position. How can he do that? Because Christ is the propitiation for sinners. And so those who find uh, refuge in the Son, Psalm 2, they turn in refuge to him, they find God as their shield. And they do not face this judgment. And therefore, God is just because he paid for their sins in Christ and he earned the righteousness that they needed in Christ so that he can truly justify them in a righteous way. And so God is righteous in his imputation of Christ's righteousness. A gospel we have that lays, the, lays bare the sinner and a gospel that clothes the sinner with righteousness. And then a gospel that leaves us with no condemnation in Christ Jesus. This is what David takes great comfort in and because of his con conviction of this coming judgment. And then he ends with a commitment to praise no matter what. A commitment to praise God no matter what. Verse 17, I will give to Yahweh the thanks due to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh the Most High. We could stop at verse 16, but, but David can't because praise is due to God. He has to praise God for this attribute, for this character we can't simply study the character of God and, and cross our T's, dot our I's, and then not praise. I hope you, when you read, uh, maybe you read a book about the Bible or devotional or read your own Bible and you think, oh, well, that's really, I think I understand it a little better. You actually stop and you say, oh, God, I praise you for that. I mean, just stop yourself in the middle, uh, at the end of a sentence. I mean, don't be like, oh, I'll praise God after this chapter. Just go, I'm just going to stop now. Or maybe you're listening to something and you go, that is incredible that God is that way. Just stop and praise. Pause. God, you're so good. You know, it's like, that's what we need to do. You know, when I have things that I really need to get done, I will send, I will email myself, do this. I will set an alarm on my phone. I'll write it on a piece of paper and put it in my pocket. And, and just every possible way that I can remind myself, don't forget, it's like in every possible way. And that's what David ends with, is this reminder, this commitment that he has to praise God. He uses his name, the Most High. It's a kind of a... Uh, a word that's often for God in the Psalms, and it speaks to God's his, his power and his sovereignty. He can, tr he can trust God in, in slander because God is the one in control. And we're not told that David was vindicated in this instance, and yet he still looked to God. He, he didn't receive justice yet in this particular instance, but that did not determine whether he would praise God or not. These are the responses that we can have when we are unjustly slandered. The confidence of a clear conscience, the comfort of the character of God, the conviction of coming judgment, and the commitment to praise no matter what. You know, these psalms are just, in some ways, you see the same themes coming up over and over again. I found this great quote. Uh, 
that's good to end on as we see just the way these psalms continue to remind us of the life of, of the Christian. It says this, quote, Trouble always leads to more psalms. <laughs> Trouble leads to more psalms. Trouble drives us to God so that we can place it before him. Then, when he delivers from trouble, we go back to him with praise. Whether in tears or in triumph, we never get away from worship, from having to deal with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for causing us to have to deal with you time and again through the troubles that come to us, which then lead us to come to you and to find your character to be trustworthy. And then we praise you again. And, and Lord, just time and again. And yes, Lord, whether through trials and tears or triumph, or we may give thanks to you this week for various triumphs and things in our lives, and it leads to praise, and it ought to. And yet also, Lord, through those, through those tears, you lead us to praise. All for your glory. We thank you for revealing more of your character to us, reminding us of your righteousness. Give us steel in our bones in, in these days that we, we know that you are going to bring a righteous judgment. And we can leave it to you and then love our neighbors. Bring us comfort in your character. Lord, give us a clear conscience if we lack one by coming to you again. We're so thankful that you love to cleanse us and to give us freedom in our conscience to live outright before you, Lord, fully for you, without the lingering guilt of our past sin. We thank you, Lord. Encourage us as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.